We lift up our hearts to you, O Lord, and ask that you would open our eyes to see you, our ears to hear your word, our hearts to receive your grace, and our lives to sing, our lips to sing your praise through Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen. This is Trinity Sunday, and uh, people have asked me why we should recognize it. Well, the the reality is the PCA doesn't recognize it, and uh, Presbyterians, by and large, don't recognize Christmas either, or Easter, or Pentecost. We just pretend those never happened, and we, we focus on the theology of them. But I think this church has a bit of a history of not doing everything that the PCA does. And we've got our own little inimitable way of doing things. We do them in the down low. So this is Trinity Sunday on the down low. And uh, I'm just going to, what I'm going to do this evening is to talk about where the Trinity comes from. You know the, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. I hope you know that. And this is often used against us by people who don't believe in the Trinity. The Socinians, I, I didn't know any of them really because they were in the 17th century, but they certainly, they certainly didn't believe in the Trinity and they accused Trinitarian people of inventing a word that wasn't in the Bible because the Socinians' modus operandi was that unless it was in the Bible and you could have find a verse to prove something, then it probably wasn't biblical or true. Uh, I didn't know Arius. He, he was even further back in history, but his was the same argument. Unless you can find one verse in the Bible that tells you that there is a trinity then, and uses the word, then we can't believe in the Holy Trinity. Then there were people nearer our own time, but so far enough away that I didn't know any of them either. There were in later on, uh, there, there was a lot of them in um, New England. New England was taken over really by people who were Unitarian, that is, they believed in one God, but they didn't believe in the Trinity. And they were very popular at one point. Again, I wasn't there, but I've read the history of them. And they basically demolished and destroyed churches all over New England, uh, canceling really gospel churches and gospel enthusiasm and gospel evangelism because they rejected the Holy Trinity. Well, why do we believe in Trinity Sunday or in the Holy Trinity? If we can't find a verse that uses the word, why do we use it? And I think when considering this, this is going to be more of a monologue than a sermon um, tonight, a preparation for the table rather than an actual proclamation of a passage. When, when we look at our Bible as a whole, you'll have noticed, I hope, that most of our Bible is what we call the Old Testament, most of the Bible. We, we as Christians didn't start uh, in our relationship with God at the time of Jesus Christ. We really trace our ancestry, spiritual ancestry, right back to the very beginning of time 
and to our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. And what they knew about God and experienced about God and, frankly, even their disobedience to God is part of our history. When the early church began, you can see this by reading the letters that we have from the apostles, they lent very heavily on the Old Testament for their views of God. And uh, when you go to the later early church, that is, say, past the year 90 or 100, crowded around the late uh, part of the first century, that is up to 100, we find writers, Christian writers, writing about the Holy Trinity. And uh, Tertullian, one of them, invented the word Trinity, in fact, into the, just over the 100, right up until nearly 200, we find a lot of people writing uh, treatises and, and pitching sermons in which they, they acknowledge the Holy Trinity. And I think I would say that the Holy Trinity is like one of these uh, things you find on Facebook. The Holy Trinity is not like the thing you find on Facebook. But it's, I can illustrate it from that. You, you know, sometimes you see these pictures that are put on and they're a puzzle. And they ask you what you see when you look at the picture. So you look at this picture. And it looks for all the world like an old witch. Have you ever seen this one? It looks like an old witch. But apparently there's a beautiful woman in the picture. And apparently once you've seen the beautiful woman, you can't not see I have yet to see the woman, the beautiful woman in the picture. All I see still is the old witch in the picture. Now, I'm not likening that to the Trinity, but I'm using that as a comparison in contrast. That when you come to the Bible, once you see the Holy Trinity in the Bible, you cannot unsee it. Let me give you an illustration. Let's walk through this for a little while. Let's start at the very beginning, which is a very good place to start. I didn't sing it. That's to my credit for this evening. Uh, Back in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything out of nothing. That's what we're told right at the very beginning of the Bible. There was no pre-existing material that he used. He created all the materials that he used in order to create the universe that we have and did so out of nothing. That's how everything began. We've no idea of knowing how far back to go to that moment, but that really doesn't amount to a hill of beans in terms of any debate or discussion we might have. That's what we're told at the beginning. But then you go and you revisit that statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No sooner are you told this than you're told that the Spirit of God was uh, hovering, as it were, over the unformed mass. So God makes the stuff from which everything else is made, but as yet it's unformed, unshaped, unfashioned, and the Holy Spirit is, is hovering over that mass. And then the third thing we see there in chapter 1 of Genesis is that there is a word spoken. God speaks. And when the word is heard, order comes out of chaos. 
Everything comes together. God says, let there be light, and there is light. The Word does the creating business. So, we're in Genesis chapter 1. You can't make too much of it, but there it is. There's God creating out of nothing. There's the Holy Spirit overshadowing what's made to form it into a shape. And then this Word speaks, and everything comes together, and everything goes. You might want to compare Genesis 1 with John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and nothing was made that was not made. Through Him all things were made, and nothing that was made was made without the Word. Right at the very beginning. So there you, there you have it. Then you come to a little later on, uh, in the story of Israel, Israel comes out of, from Jacob, uh, who's renamed Israel. His family create the state of Israel or the people of Israel. And God has given them many great and precious promises. He promises to Abraham, for example, that one of his descendants is going to be basically the Savior of the world, that he will be the blessing that will come upon all the nations of the world, all the peoples of the world. And then God works on these people. They're in bondage. He delivers them by sending Moses to them. Moses brings them out through the Red Sea into the desert, and in the desert they have an encounter with God. God visits them. And God's very scary. He visits them through storm and rain and noise and thunder and voices, and terror, terrifying. The people want to die or they are afraid God's going to kill them. It's a very dangerous situation. And Moses intervenes, and Moses receives from God the Ten Commandments. He receives from God revelation about the way in which these people, this nation, is going to live and work. And Moses teaches them some fundamental things about God, and he, he brings into the liturgy of the worship of Israel what's known as the Shema, Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. The Lord, your God, the Lord is one. The whole point of the whole of the Old Testament is to convince us that there is only one God. As you see Israel again and again and again copying the nations round about and adopting their idols or, or using their idols and using them as a means of worshiping even Yahweh, the God of Israel, in disobedience to God's law, you can see again and again and again God is saying to them, there is only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. Do you notice the triad there, the Lord, your God, the Lord, is one, built into the framework of Israel itself. And that raises questions in our mind. Do we just have to leave them there? Because the answer to the questions we might have about why is it then we call in the name of the Lord three times in, in the Shema? Well, we don't know yet. We're still in the Old Testament period. You go further on in the Old Testament and in Psalm 110, you, you hear uh, uh, David has, has this psalm given to him. He, he's writing about 
his experience of God, and he says this, the Lord said to my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. Back in chapter 1 of the Psalms, uh, David writes uh, Psalms 1 and 2. They, they belong together. Psalm 1 is the, is the psalm of the, of the perfect man, the perfect uh, holy man, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who walks in the law of the Lord, that we don't all the time he does, his ways prosper, and so on. And then in Psalm 2, the Messiah, God has appointed his Messiah on his holy hill. And he talks to his Messiah. He says to his Messiah, today, that is in the eternal today of the timeless eternity of God, today you have become my son. Today I have begotten you. You are my son. And we think, well, who is this that, that belongs to the timeless eternity of God? And in the New Testament, it's quoted. It's quoted as happening in David's day, as happening when Jesus is resurrected from the dead, as happening at another point in salvation history, because to God now, today is now to God, and in the eternal counsels of God, this, this Son has been begotten by the Father from all eternity. Who is this one? Who is this Lord to whom the Lord speaks? Who is this Son who shares the timeless eternity of the Father? Well, you move forward, you come to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah describes a, a nation, Israel, that's recalcitrant in disobedience to God. And as it unfolds, God restates again and again. It's like, it's like somebody who's practicing their boxing and a punch bag, and he's just battering this into them. The Lord is one. There's only one God. The gods of the nations are zero. They're nothing. There's only one God, the living God, the God who's revealed himself to you, you and Israel. You alone know this one God. There's only one God. Look to me, God says, and be saved all the ends of the earth. There is none like me. Over and over again, the book of Isaiah, it's being hammered into the minds of the Israelite people that God is one. He will not give his glory to another. He alone is exalted. You think of Isaiah chapter 6, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted. High and exalted. And yet by the time you get to the end of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has introduced this other figure, this figure who's called the suffering servant. This figure who will be despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This one who will bear the transgressions of his people. This one who will pour out his soul to death. We read about this one, the servant of the Lord. And yet, remember the words of Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord high and exalted. It says about the servant of the Lord that he shall be high and exalted. In other words, these divine attributes of chapter 6 are applied to the servant of the Lord later on in the book of Isaiah. And we're left wondering, well, who is this 
servant of the Lord. He's obviously a human person. He can suffer. He can be rejected. He can die. He can also live again because he will see the product of his death. He will see those who've been liberated by his death. And so the question is left hanging in the air. The answer is not given there. Who is this one? But it remains in the mind of the people, the suffering servant of the Lord. Well, we fast track then to the New Testament. There in Matthew chapter 3, we have this man from Galilee who's baptized by John the Baptist. And when he's baptized, this Jesus, now we've know, we know already something about this Jesus. We know that uh, his name means that Yahweh, that is the Lord saves. One of the things that Isaiah underlines again, 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 again is without me, there is no savior, God says. The one God that there is. Without me, there is no savior. Look to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none like me, God says. But in Matthew chapter 1, we have an angel coming to a man called Joseph to tell him that his wife is going to have a child from the Holy Spirit as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. If we turn to Luke's gospel, this is the way it's put in Luke's gospel. Remember Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the unformed waste to bring form and life to it. Luke chapter 1, the angel tells Mary, this virgin from Bethlehem, the Holy Spirit of God is going to hover over your womb. And in that womb, he will create life. And the one he creates in your womb will be called the Son of the Most High. God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And all, all of that, all of that, that's found in Luke chapter 1. Well, an angel comes to Joseph to explain what's going on. She will be with child as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. And the angel goes on to tell him that you shall call his name Yahweh saves. Yeshua Jesus in Greek, for he will save his people from their sins. And he quotes from Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. His name tells you that. He's called Yahweh saves. And he's going to show that he is Yahweh saves by saving his people from their sins. And people will call him Emmanuel, God with us. Now, this is the one who turns up at the Jordan and is baptized by John. And as he comes out of the water, the water's only a few inches deep, by the way. It's not baptistic water three or four feet deep at that point. Immediately, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom 
I am well pleased. My beloved son. The words from whom I am well pleased is, are taken from Isaiah. They're referring to the servant of the Lord who will do his work and God will be pleased with his work for our salvation. The words, this is my beloved son, come from Psalm 2. He is the one spoken to by God in Psalm 2 to whom he will give the nations for his inheritance. Well, you... You have Jesus baptized a little later on. You have the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. He takes three friends with him, goes up the mountain, and they see him transfigured before him. The description of Jesus transfigured is like the description of God in Isaiah chapter 6. It's like the description of God in Ezekiel. We see him, we see him deified before their eyes. We see the, his deity demonstrated before their eyes. They can't believe it, so they're overwhelmed by it. And then a great cloud comes and and overshadows him. Remember Genesis 1? The Spirit shadowing over creation. You remember um, Luke chapter 1? The Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary's womb. Here is Jesus transfigured. His face shines like the sun in its strength. And in the Mount of Transfiguration, the Spirit comes in the form of a cloud that overshadows the scene. And the voice of the Father is heard, repeating the words, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Hear Him. You see the triad in the story once again. Then we go fast forward, jump over to John's gospel, go to the way in which Jesus describes his relationship with his father. He he says that he has always known the father and that the father and he are one. Here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. He says that everything his father does, he does. He sees everything his father does, And he does everything his father does. There's nothing that he can do that the father cannot do. The father has given everything he is to his son so that his son can actually even be called father. Go back to Isaiah chapter 9. A virgin will, it doesn't, that's for chapter 7. Chapter 9, it is unto us, a child is born unto us, a son is given. Given by whom? Given by the Father. And his name will be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Why would you call Jesus Father? Because everything the Father has, the Son has. All the Father is as God, the Son is as God, except that he isn't the Father. But he can say to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because everything the Father has and is, he gives to his Son. And then in the latter part of John's Gospel, when Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure by death and then by ascension into heaven, he promises them that he will send another comforter, somebody just like him, 
Uh, the, word, the word another there doesn't mean another of a different kind, but another of the same kind. Someone just like him. Holy Spirit will come to you. He will be with you, and he will be in you. And then as it goes on to talk about the Holy Spirit coming, he goes on to say this, and when the Spirit comes, I will come to you, and my Father will come to you, and we will be with you and in you. So the, the Christian life is going to be marked by the presence of the triad, the three, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus at the end of Matthew, before he ascends into heaven, gathers his disciples around him. He sends them out to make disciples of all nations. How? Baptizing them in the name singular of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I quoted the, the Shema Israel, Hero Israel. You come to the New Testament, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. And the Apostle Paul uh, kind of goes out on a little riff on the Shema. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we are for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we are through him. When Thomas, who's often called the, called the doubter, I, I think I would rather call him the thinker. When Thomas is skeptical about what they're telling him about Jesus, risen from the dead, he wasn't there to see him, so he doesn't, he, he doesn't want to put all his eggs in one basket, shall we say, too soon. But Thomas is thinking about this. All week long he's heard that Jesus appeared to them, and they've told him what happened. He just appeared in the room. There he was, standing there, inviting them to touch him, sitting down and eating with them. Thomas has been thinking about this. What would it mean if Jesus was dead, buried, and is now alive? What would that mean about how you perceive Jesus? And when the next Sunday, they're all there, including Thomas, and Jesus appears and he says to Thomas, indicating that he knew precisely what had gone on during the week with Thomas's unbelief and, and the things that he had said, unless I put my finger into the nail prints in his hands and feet and my hand into the, the spear and the wound in his side, I will not believe. Here's Jesus stands and he says straight to Thomas, is there something you wanted to do, Thomas? Here's my hands. Here's my side. Thomas says, riffing on the Shema of Israel, he says, my Lord and my God. Well, then as you turn to the rest of the New Testament, if we were going to do Ephesians, we would have to see that in Ephesians, the Father does the electing in eternity, the planning from all eternity. The Son is the one who achieves our salvation and our redemption by his work on the cross. And the Holy Spirit is the down payment of the inheritance that we're going to get one day. We already have the down payment in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. 
And so it goes on. And once, once you kind of see all these, these elements to the story, once you see that, you can't unsee it. In fact, you begin to see it everywhere. We, we saw this when we were doing the book of Revelation. The Trinity is everywhere. And one of the things we learn about the Holy Trinity is that whenever the Holy Trinity is at work, ad extra, that is, outside of itself, Everything it does, it does together as one. Because there are not three gods. The whole of the Old Testament has been teaching us there's only one God. And that one God acts as one. Sometimes, of course, the action terminates in one of the persons, the Father electing, the Son redeeming, the Holy Spirit indwelling and sanctifying. But as you saw when Jesus was promising this Holy Spirit to come and live in you, He can't come without the Father and the Son coming. When Jesus went to the cross, He couldn't go to the cross without the Spirit being with Him, sustaining Him, or the the Father being beside Him, encouraging Him, which was the point of Jesus quoting from Psalm 22 drawing our attention to that psalm as any good rabbi would, quotes the first verse so that you go and you look up the rest of the psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I have never seen the righteous forsaken. And then the bird's eye view of the cross from that psalm, the bird's eye view of everything that was happening all around him, the bulls of Bashan, as it were, roaring, these men roaring at him as he hung on the cross. His bones sticking out of his body as he hangs there. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Jesus is saying, read this. Read this psalm. Be convinced that this was intended to happen. This is God's intention from all eternity to achieve your salvation. The psalm goes on to describe the multitudes that will come to believe in him. And that he will, we, he will be with his brethren, quoted in, in, in Hebrews as well. So the Bible emphasizes both the unity and the triunity of God. The one God that we worship, we worship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore, the one God that we worship is worthy of our worship, worthy of our love, worthy of our obedience, worthy of our praise, worthy of our celebration. And this evening, we're going to be celebrating in a moment the Lord's Supper, where he meets with us at the appointed place and time with bread and wine. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that our Lord Jesus has come into the world not only to be our Savior, which is wonderful, but he has come to glorify your name that we might know you. For this, he said, is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. Thank you, Spirit that you've come to indwell us, help us 
to praise and love our God's holy name. Amen.